0: For God's sake, will someone finally do something? You. That's right. I'm talking to you. Can you feel that something has gone very wrong with the fundamentals of democracy? That somehow the voice of the people for whom this country was founded have been trampled beneath the heels of a subversive, un-American elite who serve mysterious foreign masters? That these traitors don't have your, your families, or your community's best interests at heart? Once you see, you wonder how you could have ever missed it. Things aren't the way they were when you were growing up. The culture has grown coarse. Youngsters don't respect their elders. The wrong people hold the reins of power. They're taking away our rights and the privileges that are our God-given inheritance, and damn it, something has got to be done. But there's good news. For decades, thousands of your countrymen have been trying desperately to reinstate the laws that would defend our rights to self-determination. They're working to empower the men of this country to defend themselves and their homes. Imagine their lonely struggle. To inform and unite their fellow Americans. To spread the word that sinister forces trying to wrest America away from its founders' intent. That these forces can be named and targeted. Their plans can be identified and opposed by force if necessary. After all, taking up arms against tyranny is a man's highest calling. So we ask you, are you ready to serve... Are you ready to learn the truth? Are you ready to defend the status quo that kept white male Americans in unchallenged control of this country for nearly 200 years? Are you ready to take back America? Are you itching to make America great again? Then maybe you're ready to take up arms in the service of the posse comitatus. On the other hand, if you're not out of your fucking mind, I invite you instead to learn how this group, Its ideological descendants and their weird, fanciful, racist, anti-government bullshit have been wrecking lives and piling up a body count for more than 40 years. Hi! We're back. It's the Paranoid Strain. Once again to the paranoid strain. I continue to insist on being your host, Fearful Jesuit. If anyone has missed our first two episodes, then I must first say, Welcome to the bandwagon. There's a seat for you right there to the left of Area 51, just behind the grassy knoll. I also invite you to go back and listen to our first episode, which explains what this show is all about. Briefly, we're here to tell you one conspiracy and conspiracist at a time why so many people you meet, read about, and see on TV seem to believe totally crazy, insupportable nonsense. We spend our time exploring how these ideas develop, why they spread through like-minded individuals, and how they end up afflicting mainstream society. While you're at it, check out episode two, where we do our part to once again prove that the notorious anti-Semitic lie called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion is, well, a notorious anti-Semitic lie, albeit, you know, a popular one. This episode kicks off what should be a doozy of a three-parter covering all aspects of the American patriot, militia, and sovereign citizen movements. This ideology goes by some other handles as well, including Freeman on the Land, and its influence extends up to Canada, but for the most part, it's a singularly American phenomenon, and we're going to treat it as such. In the next two episodes, we'll explain how the militia movements of the 1990s morphed into the sovereign citizen lunatics who recently took over an Oregon bird sanctuary. And then we'll do a deep dive into what exactly these crazy people's ideas consist of but to start we're going to take a more historical view dipping first into the reconstruction period after the american civil war and then fast forwarding to the early 1970s to trace how a group of die-hard white supremacists and self-styled constitutional scholars launched the posse comitatus movement sparked a number of armed confrontations with authorities and finally inspired the terrorist atrocity that took down the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City in 1995. So to start us off, let's figure out what the hell posse comitatus means anyway. We're going to go ahead and assume that you're familiar with the. unpleasantness that took place between the states in the 1860s. While sane people think of the Civil War as the traumatic fever sweats that began purging the nation of its original sin of slavery, many at the time, specifically those who favored the term y'all, chose instead to see their lost cause as a final, noble stand of individual freedom against the unstoppable Yankee hireling horde.
1: Trust us, if you were raised below the Mason-Dixon between 1866 and yesterday, you got an earful of this bullshit.
0: It's a weird thing. Since the partisans of the rebel army never really accepted that they were defeated,
1: The South gonna rise again, cuz.
0: they never really went through the soul-searching and adjustment period that most societies would in similar situations. You know, maybe taking some time, licking your wounds, reconsidering the assumptions that led you to war. Maybe, and I know this sounds crazy, At least, pretend to acknowledge that you got your ass handed to you? Yeah. For the most part, rethinking their questionable way of life wasn't a big interest for the South.
1: motto. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. If anyone complains, burn a cross in their yard.
0: Which leads us to the clusterfuck that was Reconstruction. The Victorious Union wanting both to reintegrate the rebels and also impose some much-needed changes on Southern society.
1: For example, it turns out the Constitution was off on the population of black people, by like two-fifths of a person each
0: led to some good, some ham-fisted, and some fairly disastrous decisions. And of course, those tasked with enforcing these new laws ranged from inspired public servants to petty, power-grabbing opportunists. So while the noble aim was to make the South just a touch less rebel-y and deliver the citizenship rights that had recently been extended to black people-
1: <clears throat> uh, black men.
0: All right, touché. But regardless of how compromised those rights were even in theory, in practice they were facing implacable opposition from Southern whites, and the North was tired of conflict and lacked the will to truly enforce change on the white power structure of the former Confederacy. Reconstruction was already in retreat by the time U.S. Representative and former anti-union partisan J. Proctor Knott introduced the ornately Latin Posse Comitatus Act to the Congress. The term Posse Comitatus literally means power of the county, but that rather anodyne translation barely hints at what not in his cronies,
1: dare we say, his confederates,
0: were striving for. The text of the Act states, in part,
1: from and after the passage of this Act, it shall not be lawful to employ any part of the Army of the United States, as a posse comitasis or otherwise, for the purpose of executing the laws except as expressly authorized by the Constitution or by Act of Congress.
0: Now, on its face, this might seem like a good idea. After all, No one wants a bunch of infantry soldiers barging through the door. In fact, we enshrined that idea in the Constitution. But Knott's aim was more specific. Since the federal army had been enforcing laws at the county level in the South, this act was intended to remove this enforcement power and the protection it afforded to unwelcome elements like African-American voters and Republican-leaning politicians. Its passage meant that local officials were free to selectively enforce the laws to re-establish white dominance, block blacks from polling booths, overlook any unpleasantness
1: <coughs> lynchings.
0: that went on as a result of the old power structure reasserting itself, etc. As Daniel Levitas, who's The Terrorist Next Door will be one of our touchstones for this series, put it,
2: The
1: effect of the Knott Amendment in the South was to permit violence and vigilantism not obstructed.
0: The bill passed, easily, and with that one of the cornerstones of the Jim Crow Segregationist South was in place ensuring that Southern lawmakers over the coming decades could marginalize freed slaves to their heart's content. Flash forward almost 75 years, to the point where the nation starts thinking it might possibly want to start growing a conscience. The 1954 Brown v. Board of Education decision in the U.S. Supreme Court was the first step in truly desegregating the nation's schools. In the face of intransigence by Arkansas Governor Orville Thalbus, who mobilized the state's National Guard in 1957 to, quote, keep the peace, By preventing black students from entering Central High School in Little Rock, President Eisenhower federalized the Guard and ordered them instead to enforce the court's order, escorting and protecting students as they walked to school in the face of a tide of screaming, red-faced hatred. Naturally, Eisenhower's sensible, legal, and humane policy made some people awfully goddamned angry. And the angriest of all was probably William Gale. Wait, who? I'm talking about this asshole.
3: Because it says Egyptian, a lot of people just jump off and say, well, she's got to be a Mongol or a black. They do that about the wife of Moses, because it says Moses' wife was an Egyptian woman. If they do a little research, they'd find that in the Sohar, it describes Moses' wife as a daughter of one of the ancient Hyksus shepherd kings. Well, those were your race, the priests of your race in Egypt ages and ages before. And it describes her as tall, auburn-haired, blue-eyed and fair now you've never seen a nigger that's tall auburn-haired blue-eyed and fair so let's get that straight moses's
0: wife was william potter gale one of the most important figures in the conspiracy-minded reactionary movement that has defined itself through militias sovereign citizens and freemen on the land over the past few decades founded his posse comitatus
1: a loosely organized paramilitary group based on the Reconstruction-era law.
0: Specifically to oppose Eisenhower's action, Gale saw the president's use of the National Guard as a direct violation of the act that was his group's namesake, and he quickly set about recruiting like-minded reactionaries to help him spread his idiosyncratic, totally inaccurate version of America's origins and destiny. A former army officer and insurance salesman who had never quite found his place in civilian life He had been attracted to various right-wing ideologies for years, and beginning in 1953 embraced the weird racist religion known as Christian Identity, a sect that believes white people are the lost tribes of Israel and that Jews are actually a totally different satanic race.
1: We know, it's stupid. But it's not our idea. Take it up with the crazies.
0: Anyway, Gale was one of many ex-GIs who were attracted to extremist and anti-Semitic ideologies in the peaceful and prosperous 1950s. He tried out mainstream conservatism, and even the John Birchers.
1: See the first episode for more on these temperate, moderate pillars of the community.
0: But he was upset by their refusal to expose the supposedly Jewish roots of communism. So, he had gone well around the bend, even before the Brown v. Board decision, and Eisenhower's enforcement of it, lit a fuse under his powder keg of ignorance and hatred. After Brown, though, Gale started thinking big, running for governor of California on the Constitution Party platform in 1957, and announcing as part of this effort,
1: the filing of a criminal indictment against Eisenhower for the flagrantly illegal action of invading and occupying the sovereign state of Arkansas.
0: Basically, Gale demanded that Eisenhower be arrested for violating the Posse Comitatus statute. Anyway, and unsurprisingly, his marriage started unraveling around this time, and he became estranged from his kids by 1963. That year, Gale penned what turned out to be a seminal pamphlet for lunatics that he titled The Faith of Our Fathers, and which, among other things, per Daniel Levitas,
1: provides insight into his view that the Constitution was inspired by God's desire to empower whites against the depredations of Satanic Jews and so-called pre-Adamic non-white
0: races. Also, the Civil War was started by Jews. And the 14th Amendment was never ratified. It was. So black people aren't citizens and don't have a right to vote, apparently. Gale formed his own Christian identity cult, the Ministry of Christ Church, and in 1965 set about publishing a newsletter to spread the word on his totally sane, reasonable ideas. But it wasn't until 1971 that he finally encapsulated all of his angry, ill-informed, insane racist bile in a call to reinstate the concept of posse comitatus, this time not as a law, but as a group that would work to reinstate white supremacy at the local level. Over two newsletter issues, he proposed the formation of Christian posses, again quoting Daniel Levitas,
1: In the formation of this constitutional republic, the county has always been, and remains to this day, the true seat of the government for citizens who are inhabitants thereof. The county sheriff is the only legal law enforcement officer in these United States of America.
0: There's so much highfalutin legalistic stupid to enjoy here. The pre-Gettysburg construction these instead of the United States, for example. But this determination that the county sheriff is the law of the land everywhere and exclusively will become important later on in this and subsequent extremist stories, and it seems to have been articulated for the modern era by Gale. Gale enjoined his followers to form county-level posses due to the numerous anti-constitution sins of the federal government, including, of course, school integration, the Federal Reserve, the income tax, and the fact that judges didn't rule the way that Bill Gale thought they should given that the right wing was just getting itself all riled up around this time. Bill Gale seemed perfectly positioned to be the spokesman of a new, aggressive, racist, anti-Semitic, reactionary political movement. There were only two problems. The first of these is that Bill Gale, in addition to being an angry, angry man, was also a unique combination of lazy, personally uninspiring and cowardly. While his writings indeed served as the philosophical, if you can call it that, underpinnings of the posse comitatus and other movements that would soon emerge from the racist and tax protester underworld of the late 60s, Gale himself was not the one who popularized them. Instead, more charismatic and active figures, like Henry Lamont Beach, would essentially steal Gale's ideas and publish them as their own work, Beach himself eventually became the go-to figure for contemporary articles about the leadership of the nascent posse movement, while the press largely ignored Gale. Oh, and that other problem I alluded to? It was pretty super awkward for a wannabe anti-Semitic posse leader, but his author Daniel Levitas goes to great lengths to demonstrate... Yep. He was Jewish. Bill Gale was a member of the tribe on his father's side.
1: Though, to be fair, his father Charles had gone to great lengths to distance himself from his
0: own heritage. His confused relatives pointed out, among other facts, that his aunts and uncles were proudly and unabashedly Jewish. In response, Gail and his equally deluded sister concocted a fable whereby their uncles and aunts were all Jewish, but only by marriage. He stubbornly stuck by this nonsense throughout his life. Also, remember that, according to his Christian identity religion, supposedly Anglo-Saxon Christian men like Bill Gale are, in fact, Israelites, because Anglo-Saxons are the true Israelites discussed in the Bible, and modern Jews are just imposters.
1: Christ, this just gets dumber the more time we have to say it.
0: Regardless of Gale's many drawbacks as a leader, his ridiculous ideas inflamed significant numbers of like-minded bigots across the country. As posses began popping up all over the West— a number of deeply stupid incidents came with them. The most fun is the chicken incident.
1: Sorry to say, he is going to get to it later this episode.
0: But there were many others, from armed resistance to unionization of farm workers in California's San Joaquin Valley, to the armed takeover of a potato farm in Oregon.
1: The unifying concept here is
0: armed. But the stories only veered from farce into tragedy when the Posse Comitatus movement met the farm crisis. We turn to the riveting book, Bitter Harvest, the story of Posse member Gordon Call by James Corcoran your
2: brain.
0: The scenario faced by farmers in the early nineteen eighties was seemingly impossible. In the 1970s, inflation had made many, as Corcoran notes, rich, at least on paper. Quote,
1: In fact, by 1980, North Dakota had the second highest number of millionaires per capita in the United States.
0: Flush with this new cash, and with the federal government encouraging them to buy up land and plant more food,
1: the idea being that the American farmer would feed the world through massive exports.
0: Farmers purchased huge tracts of land on margin, counting on ever-rising productivity and crop prices to cover the bloated interest payments they owed to the bank so they were completely unprepared for 1981's recession. Suddenly, international markets for American grain dried up, crop and land prices collapsed, and farmers were left to face runaway inflation on seeds, equipment, labor, everything except their land and crops. They tried to organize, petition the government for help, but their cries fell largely on deaf ears. While the policies that had led to this crisis were certainly questionable in retrospect, it wasn't like policymakers in Washington wanted farmers to lose their farms and even the banks were only really foreclosing as a matter of last resort. Meanwhile, farmers felt, understandably, that they had been good Americans, done exactly what had been asked of them, and had gotten shafted. Their whole way of life was in jeopardy. The situation was pretty horrible for everybody.
1: Except, that is, for the Parsi comitatus.
0: Yes, since attempts by Gale and others to expand into the Midwest in the early days had fallen largely on deaf ears— Our favorite hate-mongers weren't entirely displeased by the plight of Midwest farmers. As Corcoran put it,
1: Like a vulture perched over a stray calf, the posse saw the farm crisis as an opportunity to feed its hunger to create a white Christian republic.
0: To expand into the Midwest, the posse was counting on a cadre of native farmers who had credibility with their neighbors and who had swallowed the posse philosophy hook, line, and sinker. Gordon answered the... call? Oh, Lord. I beg your pardon. But for the posse's purposes, Gordon Call was the real deal. A highly decorated B-25 turret gunner in World War II, he had returned to farming after his service. But it was during that time in the Army Air Corps that he was first exposed to the conspiracy theories that would dominate his life in the coming decades. He had come home convinced that the super-rich, especially the Jews, had deliberately sent the country into war with the help of FDR. His burgeoning paranoia was fed by our old friend Henry Ford. See Episode 2. As his wife Joan later noted, By the time Call returned to his native North Dakota after the war and began farming,
1: he realized something was drastically wrong in the United States, but he didn't know what.
0: This inchoate unease led Call ever deeper into conspiracist thinking, and eventually into the welcoming arms of the posse comitatus. He had his first run-ins with the law over his refusal to pay taxes. In the course of his self-education, he had determined that the IRS was the enemy, and in 1967, Corcoran notes,
1: wrote a letter and informed the Bureau that he would... No longer pay tithes to the synagogue of Satan under the second plank of the Communist Manifesto to finance his country's destruction. Never again will I give aid and comfort to the enemies of Christ.
0: By the time he hooked up with the posse in 1973, he had independently come to most of the same conclusions that defined their philosophy and was quickly named a state coordinator. A few years later, his anti IRS stance caught up with him and he was sentenced to a one year jail term in 1979 for skipping out on his income taxes. He served his time but continued to refuse to pay any of the taxes or penalties he owed which meant that shortly thereafter the IRS seized his land and the marshal service issued an arrest warrant for violating the terms of his parole serving that warrant would prove to be a tragic and important moment in the history of violent extremism
2: the country was in a recession and with every foreclosure farmers saw their way of life disappearing
4: they blamed the politicians and bankers for selling them
2: out
3: there's a conspiracy within the government and we can prove farmers who believed
2: in a government conspiracy were talking of fighting back one of them gordon call traveled the countryside promoting tax revolt and armed resistance.
3: Two station coming at you.
2: The confrontation began in North Dakota when U.S. Marshals came to arrest call for violating his probation on a tax conviction.
0: But for the rest of this story, we turn to our interview with the one and only professor and author James Corcoran, whose self-chosen patented paranoid strain pseudonym for this episode will be Corky Capote.
3: The shootout occurred outside of Medina, North Dakota. It involved a Group of members of the Posse Comitatus, particularly a man by the name of Gordon Cole. Posse is a anti-government, anti-tax organization that basically felt that there was no power higher than the county, and that uh, any attempt by the government to levy taxes or to collect taxes was illegal. They believed that the government was actually controlled by the Jews. They referred to it oftentimes as Zog, the Zionist occupation government. And this happened in the 1980s, the height of uh, what we called the farm crisis. And the posse was basically going around the Country telling farmers that they shouldn't be paying their taxes, they shouldn't have to listen to the government's, you know, or the bank's attempts to collect on their debts and things of that nature. This action was simply action by the government to try, try and take control. Gordon Call had been involved with the posse for quite a number of years. He was well known uh, or widely known to uh, law enforcement. He had spent some time in jail for failure to pay his taxes, and once he uh, got out, he had made it clear that if they ever attempted to come and get him, there would be trouble and uh, that he wasn't going to go back to jail and he still wasn't going to pay his taxes. And then on that day in Medina, there was a, a warrant for his arrest for having, again, failed to pay taxes and for having traveled around the country, basically trying to stir up actions against the government lawmen attempted to arrest him. There was a shootout. Two lawmen were killed and a number of others were wounded. And Gordon Call went on the run and was subsequently tracked down four months later in Arkansas where there was another shootout and another lawman was killed along with Gordon. Gordon, in effect, became kind of a someone who was seen as a martyr for the cause. And he became someone who was admired and... Uh, uh, By others in this anti government movement, this kind of broader uh, anti government movement that included not just groups like the Posse, but the Aryan Nations, uh, the Order, and a host of, you know, Klan groups and neo Nazi groups. He was seen as someone who stood up, did what uh, they needed to do to stand up to the
0: government. You really covered in the book, Gordon calls sort of intellectual history and, and development in this uh, movement thoroughly, but he seems basically universally to have been described as, you know, a good, quiet, conscientious neighbor and citizen, except if you brought up taxes or the government or, you know, the, the supposed Jewish secret running of said government. What What made this such a trigger for him? Gordon... <laughs> as you know from reading the book, never really
3: made enough money that taxes was ever going to be a problem. You know, he was a small-time farmer, had a small farm, uh, eked out a living. He had come to believe that things were not right in the country, and he seemed to feel that the government was trying to control him in ways that he felt just weren't fair, one being, you know, he worked hard for his money. Why did you have to share that with the government. What were they trying to do? And his contention, like, you know, many of these folks, is that taxes are simply a way to take money away from people, keep them in debt, keep them owing. And when they are in debt and they can't get out of it, so they come in, and they take away the farm, and then the government has control of the land. And once the government has control of the land, they have control of the food. And once they have control of the food, they have control of the All of us, and, you know, it was just this kind of, in their mind, this vicious cycle. You saw some of that same argument. For example, the Bundy uh, matter in Nevada in uh, 2014, and then the most recent one in Oregon, where, again, it was, we're better suited to deal with the land. The government has no business controlling this land and, in fact, then charging us to, you know, feed our cattle or do what we want with the land.
0: So you, you mentioned the Posse Comitatus, and if you could just very uh, quickly sketch the origins of that movement.
3: The Posse Comitatus's ideological foundation is that there is no power greater than the county. All matters are local, and the government has no business, whether it is desegregation, whether it is taxes, and that all things should be handled at, say, the county level. I became aware of it in the 1980s when... We were looking at this, but the posses had been around since about the 19, early 1960s, late 1950s. And basically, it was this kind of sense that the government was too deeply involved in our life and that we needed to just have more of a, a say in what was going on. When we talk about uh, the posse, it's a loosely organized movement, anti-government, anti-Semitic, conspiracy-oriented, practice what was called paper terrorism, where they would file writs or liens or whatnot against government officials. A number of the U.S. Attorney's Office and, say, the IRS officials, when they went to sell a house, they found that there was a lien placed against the house, which someone in the posse had slapped a lien against. Nobody becomes aware of it. You have to sell it, and then all of a sudden you've got this hassle that you have to go through, making life miserable for federal officials. And, of course, all these things got thrown out the minute they were brought into court and came to the light of day. But, you know, what it did is caused people hassles. Who wants to buy a house that's got to lean against it, right? And the other thing about the posse, many of their believers are uh, Christian identity. People of color, for example, were seen as false starts by God. In their minds, you know, it took a while, then they got the white race, and, you know, of course, the white race is the ultimate race. All these others were seen as false starts or as they referred to a mud people. You know, these folks don't believe in driver's licenses or even putting licenses on their car because who are you to tell me that I have to license my car or that I have to have a license
0: to drive? What, what would make somebody who basically lived <clears throat> among white Christian Protestants his whole life in the middle of the Midwest? I, I can't imagine that Gordon Call came into contact with any... Significant number of Jewish people in his life. How did Jews come to play such an outsized role in his view of you know this evil that this pernicious evil that that sort of runs the world?
3: And it wasn't so much that you know I found anyway with the uh, posse members that they were quote unquote necessarily racist. Their fervent hate was toward Jews, and they saw blacks more or less as the pawns of the Jews, you know, kind of used to further their goals and, you know, all this other stuff. So they saw them more as just people that had to be dealt with in order to get at the real powers that be and that be in the Jews. I found a far more anti-Semitic strain that ran through groups like the Posse and some of these other militia movements, and thus the term, you know, as I said, ZOG, Zionist Occupation Government, which is how I'm number of these anti-government organizations such as the posse, that's what they see. It's not a true American government, and that they're you know destroying um, you know the white race, the white Christian race
0: in particular. on the day of the Medina shootout the the reason that the marshals were sort of on the case, we're calling from your book is that somebody saw Gordon's license plate in a parking lot. And the, and the meeting that he was attending, if it didn't lead to such tragic circumstances, would read as basically a farce because the topic, if, if you would please elaborate, is basically on the subject of whether or not other races could be in their imaginary county-level club.
3: It was a posse meeting, and it was a small group, 10, 12 people who showed up. And yes, uh sheriff Uh, in Sussman County, happened to know that there was this warrant out for Gordon. There had been a number of attempts to try to arrest him at several instances, and they all fell short. He saw that Gordon's car and, you know, and others were at this meeting at Doc Martin's clinic. Uh, Contacted U.S. Marshal's office in Fargo, said, hey, I know you've got a warrant out for Gordon. He's here. I don't know how long it's going to be, but, uh, you know, just want to give you a heads up. And it was then decided that, yeah, this seems like a good time to come and get them. Yeah, it was a meeting about, you know, who should, what membership should we allow in? You know, the subject of Jews and, you know, whatnot came up. And it was like, but there aren't any Jews around. But it was clear that Gordon was getting kind of worked up that he wanted it very clear that there was no right for any Jews or any, you know, people of color to be in this group. And, you know, Doc Martin, on the other hand, kind of a easygoing going fellow who had his own issues with the government. He had brought up that he didn't see what the big deal was, and uh, Gordon had made it clear, well, if you do this, I'm out of this group. Everything got kind of worked up, and then uh, they decided to take a break, and then they noticed that they were being watched.
0: It's so striking to me that they were having an argument about their imaginary settlement that no one was going to let them create, or if they did, no one would notice, and they were arguing about the people of different religions and ethnicities who weren't around and wouldn't be interested in being in their club anyway, and whether they could let them in. And that is, that is the pretext. That is the thing that happens to be the trigger for this horrific shootout.
3: It was never going to happen in the first place. I mean, they were talking about things that were just, is it ever possible? And they were flights of fancy, basically that they were discussing because you're right. It, wasn't going to happen.
0: The way that the the firefight went forward, you know, there, there was some dispute at the time about who shot. You seem to indicate that Yori Call, who is Gordon's son, fired the first shot. And then from then on, it was chaos. But at the end of the firefight, there was only one officer who was actually struck dead immediately. The other one was very likely fatally wounded. But could you characterize what Gordon did after that? Because even if you accept his argument that he's, you know, in a firefight uh, for his life with the marshals, it's he, he's got a very cold-blooded act he follows up with. Once
3: the shooting was done and everyone was pretty well uh, put out of commission, and Gordon walked up to the SUV where wounded officers was on the ground, and uh, that officer had been calling for backup and had been calling for help. I mean, he'd been shot in the Uh, chest. It was clear the officer was no threat. He was on his radio. And when you hear the the radio broadcast, it's clear this guy is in bad shape. And Gordon, you know, the witnesses or the folks there described it, looked back at Bob Cheshire, or the deputy U.S. Marshal. He put a couple of shells into him and, uh, you know, killed him. I mean, he was dying. And there was no way that they were going to get to him in time. I mean, he was going to be dead, but Gordon just made sure, killed him, and uh, one would say cold blood. Now, Gordon, of course, sent me a letter when he was on the run. It's, uh, you know, for some reason, I mean, I, evidently, he was reading the news stories, and, you know, he saw my byline, I guess, and he, you know, I received this letter, 14, 15 pages, uh, where he gave his view of what took place, and it, it was his claim that you know, Bob was somehow reaching for a gun or and that he saw Bob as a threat, and that's why he fired. But that's all we have in terms of what Gordon has to say. Witnesses or those who saw what happened, you know, didn't see that part of it and uh, just said that what they saw was Gordon then firing, you know, two shots into Bob Cheshire.
0: There are still websites that are devoted to the idea of freeing Yori Call. Uh, that's Gordon's son, um, and they see him as a political prisoner. And also, extremists who believe that they have musical talent are still writing terrible, terrible songs about the story of Gordon Call. Um, but at the same time, he's definitely not a household name, as you pointed out, uh, you, that the way that McVeigh is, or even Terry Nichols, or even like David Koresh, or uh, Randy Weaver from the Ru- Ruby Ridge. But Gordon does seem to be sort of almost the secret star of a lot of extremist fantasies about rising up against the government. What what do you think has given his story such staying power?
3: Well, I think it was the first in what we could, I I guess, call the modern era of this kind of rise of, you know, these anti-government groups and this kind of battle against, uh, you know, the government. And here was this small town farmer who, you know, stood up to the, U.S. government, and basically everyone pretty much agrees that all the damage done at that shootout uh, outside of Medina was done by Gordon. The only one who hit everyone he put his sight on was Gordon. So there was this kind of sense of, here's this man who stood up to the government and won this firefight. And then he goes on the run, and this was one of the biggest manhunts in history at that time. I mean, this 60-some-year-old Dirt farmer outwitted the FBI. Just disappeared into the fog.
2: Fifty-two go ahead. is DOA. Fifty-two hundred
3: DOA. Fifty-two oh seven. You are reminded that Gordon Call is considered armed and extremely dangerous.
0: And what gave him up was actually a phone call from the uh, woman who was the daughter of the guy who let him stay at his place in Arkansas.
3: Yeah. And that happened because they had a falling out or a fight. So she was going to get even with her father. And that was what occurred. And it was interesting because as this evolved, you know, this uh, the shooting occurred on February 13th in 1983. And then there was just this intense, I mean, they had shut down the roads into one particular town because there were a number of supporters who lived in uh, the town of Ashley, and they did kind of a house-to-house, thinking that he was there. They went to his uh, home and basically... Blew the hell out of that, even though nobody was there. These guys were looking everywhere, and they were angry. I mean, you could tell that from what they did to the house. And they just blew the hell out of that. And I will say that when I was doing the research for the book, and I went back to visit with uh, Cole's wife, and she was back at the house, I could still, and this was four years, five years later, I could still smell the tear gas.
0: You said they had told her that she could go back in a few days, and it ended up being, like, weeks or months.
3: Yeah, I mean, it was just amazing and they didn't want to come off seeming like they had gone absolutely bonkers on this but, you know, and they said we only fired a few shots and a few rounds of tear gas, but no, it was far more than that. They were mad as hell. Uh, But he goes on the run, he becomes and I'm sorry that I've drawn away from uh, your uh, initial question about why he became this kind of uh, symbol, this martyred symbol, but You know, he was really the first in that, you know, as that time was starting to bubble up and uh, he was seen as someone who was standing up. And then, you know, what happened to him, you know, and the belief is, is that, you know, the argument down there was, is that he was literally murdered in Arkansas, that, you know, they he wasn't coming out alive. And not only did they kill him, but they then burnt him to a crisp, which, of course, allowed for. Some people to argue that he never was in that house and that uh, he's still out there somewhere. I mean, you've got people who still believe Gordon Cole wasn't dead. The fact that he had been burned beyond recognition suggests that it was actually somebody else that was killed in that uh, house in Arkansas.
0: Do you feel like, it, given the events that we've seen recently with the Bundy standoff and the Oregon Wildlife Refuge uh, incident, do you feel it's a more or less dangerous time for this brand of extremism than it was at the height of the posse? Or do you not see parallels directly?
3: Oh, I do see parallels. I mean, I do see, I see parallels to this time to what led up to uh, Oklahoma City. The rhetoric we hear in the mainstream that seems to give cover to the more extreme rhetoric that is even out there was much like what we were hearing leading up to Oklahoma City. We were hearing federal law enforcement officers. I can remember uh, in the early 90s, you know, uh, Wayne LaPierre from NRA sending out kind of fundraising letters referring to federal law enforcement as jackbooted thugs, comparing them to Nazis and things like that. I mean, this kind of just outrageous references to our government and what role they play. And you can hear that in our mainstream rhetoric today and that i think just gives solace to a lot of the extreme elements that jesus all of a sudden they're no longer you know seen as extreme because their you know kind of views or some of their views or many of their views are being embraced or espoused through what we call the mainstream
0: and 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 they see in in many ways as you pointed out in the book they see it as an actual religious obligation like gordon saw paying his taxes as paying satan Like, he saw it as cooperating with Satan, literally.
3: When you've got this all woven together in your religious theology, in your ideology, that becomes the philosophy that you embrace, and it's one that you will adhere to. And like, I guess, any true ideologue, you know, there is no negotiation. You have the right answers. That's what you believe. Our ideology is what is the one true ideology. And you can't negotiate that. Right. Even in our own, uh, you know, the so-called mainstream politics, we're getting to a point
0: where, geez, you
3: can't seem to negotiate, you know, with each other to find uh, middle ground that it's either all or nothing.
0: Thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. OK, my pleasure. The story of Gordon Call. It's worth taking a moment to appreciate the work of, well, let's just call them musicians, who have been inspired by Gordon's story and have taken the time to share their inspirations with all of us on YouTube.
4: Gordon Call was right when he made his famous stand. Heaven knows there was a man who fought the righteous fight. Till the wrong arm of the law gunned him down in Arkansas. He would not pay one dime.
3: Fanatics got to be brought in line, we can no longer tolerate their kind, from
4: North Dakota to Arkansas, they usurp power to
3: break the law, federal fanatics ought to all be doing time.
0: Now it's time for our letters section. Remember, you can contact us at theparanoidstrain, no spaces, at gmail.com. And if you'd like to record yourself and send in the audio as an attachment, you'll even be able to hear your question asked in your own voice. Ah, the wonders of technology. Just be sure you include your preferred pseudonym. We do love our pseudonyms. This week, we've heard from a brand new correspondent named Petrified Augustinian, who writes...
3: And gee, I can't believe I'm actually writing to Fearful Jesuit. Such a big fan. Is it true that you're dating Taylor Swift? You're so amazing. Anywho. Like any millennial, I was recently watching the 1988 film version of Eric Bogosian's talk radio and realized that it's based on an actual crime committed in the early 80s by a group of posse-friendly folks called The Order. Could you take a few moments to explain
0: these loon balls and how they fit into the overall armed extremist movement? Dear Augustinian, so great to hear the younger generation taking an interest both in the early oeuvre of Oliver Stone and in the history of violent extremism.
1: Listeners, we are begging you. He is going to keep writing letters to himself until you start sending in correspondence of your own. Please, send him a question or a comment. For all our sakes.
0: Hmm. That was weird. Well, I'm not dating Miss Swift, rumors to the contrary notwithstanding. But I do have a story to tell you about the most prolific, violent, and successful of the various paramilitary extremist groups that were active in the early 80s, the Order. Their enemy,
2: the government of the United States, it was tried for conspiring to seditiously overthrow
0: the
4: United States government. And that is one of the proudest moments of my life.
2: What this group did was rob and kill in the name of revolution. Their leaders had a hit list and a plan to blow up power lines, poison water supplies, and sabotage the Los Angeles Olympics. This was
0: undoubtedly the most organized group of terrorists that ever operated in the United States. Over the course of 1984, this group of dedicated, trained, vicious racists waged a remarkably lucrative string of robberies across the Northwest, supplemented with some light counterfeiting, and capped with the senseless murder of an outspoken Jewish talk show DJ, Alan Berg, this last being the inspiration for Bogosian's play-turned-film. The order was founded and led by Robert J. Matthews. As detailed in James Coates' book, Armed and Dangerous, The Rise of the Survivalist Right, By the time Matthews had turned 30, he was a dedicated tax protester, anti-Semite, and extremist, a follower of William Pierce, the head of the neo-Nazi National Alliance. More importantly for our story, Pierce was also the author of a particularly notorious, racist screed of a novel called The Turner Diaries. The book tells the tale of Earl Turner, rakish 'er ne'er-do-well, man about town, murderer, terrorist, criminal psychopath, and, in Pierce's story, a hero. Turner and his compatriots wage a merciless insurgent war against a future ruled by. Wait for it. A secret Jewish conspiracy, whose crimes include the encouragement of. Mixed race couples.
1: Oh, heaven forfend.
0: And worse, banks give these couples low interest loans to move into all white neighborhoods.
1: Quick, fetch my fainting couch.
0: Also, there's some super gross evil stuff, like the courts have made it legal for black men to rape white women. For some reason. Anyway, it's real end-of-the-world material.
3: Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria!
0: So Turner and his cronies print phony money to bankrupt the country, they rob banks, they assassinate those who collaborate with the Jewish-led government, etc. Turner eventually dies attacking the Pentagon with a nuke.
1: Oh, and the name of the group of covert and paramilitary racists who fight and die with Turner in the novel? They call themselves the Order.
0: In a sane world, this piece of shit would be the long-forgotten fever dream of an equally forgotten asshole. In the world we inhabit, Robert J. Matthews decided to use it as the blueprint for a personal war against the government, going so far as to name his real-life group after Turner's cronies.
1: It's kind of like those dipshits who play a deeply sad version of critics from the Harry Potter novels running around a soccer field with broom stuck between their legs. Except, you know, evil.
0: The real-life order dreamed big, and were surprisingly effective— carrying off a string of ever more successful robberies, culminating in a brazen armored car heist in broad daylight that netted $3.6 million. Some of this money went to fund the group's activities, including a plan to scatter to the winds and plant seed groups throughout the country when the authorities started closing in. And as noted above, they gunned down Allenberg in front of his own Denver home the first in a planned string of assassinations of Jews and other perceived enemies. If
4: you don't like it, you can move to Moscow, correct?
1: If you're not not a Christian, you're un-American. Is that your point, sir? That's
0: right. Good point, sir.
1: You and your redneck, go go to bed.
0: You're listening to Alan Berg on KOA. Fortunately, the FBI ended up with a few lucky breaks, including a cooperating witness involved in the group's counterfeiting operation. In the end, the feds arrested 24 members of the order, though Matthews wasn't among them. We'll
3: to negotiate with the uh, subject or subjects in the house as of about five minutes ago.
2: Over the next 32 hours, the FBI tries to get Matthews to surrender. Ron Edwards from the county sheriff's office listens to the bizarre negotiations.
3: One of the things that, that he wanted was that all
0: of the blacks be put on boats and shipped back to Africa.
2: Five SWAT team officers storm into the house, only to find him barricaded on the second floor. A second gun battle erupts that night, when a helicopter is called in. Flares will be used to light up the ground floor. A fire begins, then spreads.
3: The whole time the house was burning,
0: he was still firing. Uh, He wouldn't give up.
2: The leader of the order never emerges from his safe house.
0: He ended up… crispy. By the way, there was another famous fan of the Turner Diaries. This guy especially loved the part where Turner and his cronies use a truck-based bomb to blow up the FBI building. He found it super inspirational, but we'll get back to him and his friend a little later. So the order was rounded up in one fell swoop. But what happened to the posse? While the various organizations using the name Posse Comitatus gradually faded over the course of the 80s, the group's underlying ideology lived on. It began popping up again in the militia movement, independent paramilitary armies whose heyday was the 1990s. You may recall the notorious Michigan militia, for example. Also during this period, there were a number of standoffs that pitted extremists of various stripes against the federal government. And the government didn't always come off as the good guys. First, there was the 1992 incident in which Randy Weaver, a white separatist without a history of violence, was entrapped by the FBI on a weapons charge in hopes that he could be used to inform on his fellow racists. Weaver wasn't interested, and when he didn't show up for his trial date, the feds surrounded his remote cabin, shooting his dog and setting off a tragic chain of mistakes and miscalculations that eventually led to Weaver's wife, Vicky, and the couple's child being shot and killed by an FBI sniper. Many Americans, including those with no love for right-wing extremism, felt the government had vastly overreacted in the Weaver case with calamitous results. And things got much worse the next year during a standoff between David Koresh's followers and federal agents in Waco, Texas. On the 51st day of the siege, the tear gassing began. This is not an assault. We are not entering the building. Come on! We're the building down. After six hours of intense tear gassing, smoke was spotted in a second-story window. Within minutes, the whole building was ablaze.
4: And everything in there just went pitch black. Don't lose control of this, David. Lead your
3: people out, David. Be a messiah, not a destroyer. the
0: The long siege that culminated in the horrific fire that killed nearly all of the Branch Davidians enraged still more Americans who saw these incidents as a sign that the government was truly out of control and becoming a threat to the freedoms of its citizens. Don't get me wrong. Koresh was a monster, a child predator, and a sociopath. But the FBI done fucked up. A personal hero of mine, the late comedian Bill Hicks, was typically funny, insightful, and poignant on the topic. You know, and if, they, if the ATF and FBI had any honor, if there was any honor left or dignity on this planet, they would commit Harry Carey while first uh, admitting what they've done, and they'd kill themselves, because they are liars and murderers.
4: Oh, uh, we had to bust the compound down because we heard
0: child molestation was going on. Yeah, if that's true, how come we don't see Bradley tanks knocking down Catholic churches? Of course, while the government was certainly misguided in its handling of these incidents, and perhaps even incompetent, their failures were used by extremists as fuel to justify an ever more fearful, paranoid, insular turn to their gun-fetishizing subculture. For a number of years, these armed patriots formed militia groups. Anyone who remembers this period will recall that their anti-government rhetoric was part of the backdrop of fear and generalized worry that permeated the culture as we approached the year 2000.
1: Big round numbers on the calendar really bring out the crazies, apparently.
0: We're going to take a closer look at how these militia groups eventually evolved into the more independent sovereign citizen movements of the new millennium in our next episode. But before we conclude this one, I'd like to take a moment to recognize one of the strangest figures and incidents of the Posse Comitatus era. Ladies and gentlemen, from the four corners of our great land, we present this episode of Profiles in Crazy. Thomas Stockheimer was one of the key figures who brought the backbone conspiracy theories of the posse comitatus together with the issues that were upsetting farmers and other rural populations, from land use regulations to the farm foreclosure crisis of the late 70s and early 80s. For that reason, he is an important stepping stone between Bill Gale's bloviating and Gordon Call's deadly highway standoff. But one particular incident draws our attention here. Because you see, one afternoon in August of 1974, Thomas Stockheimer and a number of other posse members ambushed an IRS agent named Fred Chicken. Here then, we provide a rich, evocative, dramatic reenactment of what this event might have sounded like.
1: I um, I just want to apologize in advance to everyone. He, he made us do it.
0: Most of the following are direct quotes as detailed by Daniel Levitas in Chapter 18 of The Terrorist Next Door. The rest... Is my fault. Agent Chicken enters the living room of Alan Grew, the farmer whose tax records Chicken expected to be reviewing during his routine visit. Instead, he's greeted by a roomful of angry posse members, video equipment, and small arms. What's going on? Oh, these these are some of
4: my friends. I'll come back later. No, you will not. (laughs) You didn't see me hit him, did you? No, I didn't. What is your name and where are your credentials? Here you go. Squat! You are in violation of your sworn oath of office and are committing treason by enforcing the Internal Revenue Code. Do you know that this here copy of the Communist Manifesto and the 16th Amendment that authorized your graduated income tax are one and the same? But, girl, I don't see any correlation. You don't see any correlation? Well, then, I see you need a little lecture on Christian common law. Why, Way back when our Anglo-Saxon forefathers began this country and bravely took up arms against the Sinister machinations of King George and his tyrannical duties on tea and all other manner of things that this country needed.
0: This went on for about an hour. Blah,
4: blah, 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 Nelson Rockefeller. Blah, 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 Jews. Blah, 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 Americans. He's not listening. Can I ah! go now? Yes. God bless you.
1: Again, I'm, I'm I'm so, so sorry.
0: Fred Chicken went free after being harangued for an hour or so. Of course, Stockheimer and company were brought up on charges. And while this was certainly the most entertaining incident in Stockheimer's career as a crackpot, it was hardly the last. He also issued his own subpoenas, convened his own grand jury, and indicted 50-plus officials. Naturally, all of these were meaningless nonsense.
1: But y'all, he was super into it.
0: Plus, he ended up getting into a scuffle when his buddy and he broke into a courthouse and pepper sprayed an officer. Quick reminder for everybody who's convinced we're drowning under a flood of reverse racism, white guy Stockheimer by this point had assaulted state police officers and unlawfully detained a federal IRS agent. And unlike black men who sell illegal cigarettes or CDs, he walked away with a slap on the wrist. And you know, alive.
1: Yeah, white folks got a tough
0: while Stockheimer's heyday was the 1970s, he did have a minor role in rather more significant anti government activity later on. In the 90s, Daniel Levitas reports
1: He and eight associates were charged with mail fraud and conspiracy for selling bogus money orders. But one of Stockholm's customers was Terry Nichols.
0: And that's a name that Americans will never forget.
4: We have a large column. <laughs> Explosion took away what appears to be nearly one-third of the building. The entire front is gone a Terrible explosion. It's just like a atomic bomb went off. The story is in Oklahoma City Take a look at this. This is a federal office building in downtown Oklahoma City It's called the Murrah building. It is right in the center of town And at 9 o'clock this morning an explosion of unknown origin Did this to the building have
0: to have the You know That's the problem with ideas like the ones behind the posse comitatus. For every funny, farcical story like the Fred Chicken incident, there's another tale, like Gordon Call, or The Order, or Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols, where officers or citizens pay far too high a price for somebody's viciously paranoid strain. This has been The Paranoid Strain. Special thanks to our wonderful interviewee, James Corcoran, get a copy of Bitter Harvest. It's an evocative book about a painful event. As always, we're grateful for the musical stylings of Daniel Arizona and the Paranoid Strain Orchestra, and the dulcet Northern European interjections of Ms. Dana Unicorn. This time, I also need to thank the inimitable Paranoid Strain players. See you at Oscar time, boys. I'm Fearful Jesuit. Thanks for listening. Next month, we continue this series, learning how the posse-inspired militia movements of the 1990s mutated in the wake of Oklahoma City into the sovereign citizens we saw occupying an Oregon bird sanctuary in late 2015. Until then, remember, the world is chaotic, but it's not out to get you. Or at least, not you specifically.